this platform. Thank you. Y'all look different from up here than you do down there. Is it right? Am I on, Brian? Yeah, there you go. Be good now. Okay, good. Well, I'm going to ask you to stand again, if you don't mind. And let's invite the Lord into our presence the way that I do when God leads me to teach. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, you who sanctifies us with your commandments and anoints us with your presence in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your house, to join together as a fellowship under your leadership. We ask, Lord, that as we come to this time together, that you might quiet our minds and our hearts, our eyes and our ears, that we might be ready vessels to receive an outpouring of your grace. May we see your presence. May it dwell among us as we go through this time together. May all that we do lift up the name of our Lord and Savior. I ask, Lord, as we come into this time that you might consecrate our thoughts, consecrate our hearts, consecrate our actions, and consecrate our walk, that we might stay on the path of righteousness which you have laid out before each of us. Lead us, Lord. Guide us. Direct us as we seek to stay faithful to the paths that you have given us. And now, Lord, as we enter this time of study, we invite you into our presence, and it is our heart's desire that all that is said, all that is done in this place at this time might be found pleasing in your sight. This we lift up in the strong and mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. All right. Okay, this is going to be a little different for me. I am not a preacher. God, I am aware, I know and respect that God has called me to teach, but not to preach. So what I'm going to try to do this morning is instead of preaching to you, is teach. And I want to start by telling you that many of you have told me before that, uh, the kinds of material that I teach you've not heard before, uh, and um, it's been a blessing, praise the Lord, to me to study it, and God willing, it's been a blessing for some of you to hear it. I think what I would like to start by doing is giving you an idea, a little history, biography of how I came to study what I do. About 30 years ago, maybe even a little over 30 years ago, I had... Um, I attended a meeting at a man's house who had a brother who happened to be a professor of Israel antiquities at Wheaton University. His brother was coming down for a visit because he had just written a book and he was inviting some of his uh, friends to come over and hear his brother speak. The man who spoke had written a book called Customs and Controversies, A New Testament Background, and messed to my recollection, it was not even available for distribution at that time when we went to the meeting. I heard things at that meeting that I had never heard before. Heard information about the character of Israel, the people, the land, the culture, that I never knew existed. I had always read scripture through the lens of a 20, 
21st, well, at the time, it was a 20th century Western person who had never had any exposure to that kind of material before. At that meeting, that man handed out an exhibit, this little exhibit right here. And it is a map of Israel with information that he had written on it. And that sheet of paper has been in the cover of my Bible for over 30 years. I learned a lot from that experience. And it kind of opened up an, uh, an eagerness to try to understand, <clears throat> understand the God that I serve within the context in which he saw fit to deliver him. Not too many years after that, I attended a church service that was um, the first sermon that a very young preacher was going to give. And being my analytical self, I was uh, somewhat grading him when I heard this sermon. I don't remember much about the sermon, but I remember this. He constantly came, kept coming back to the principle that we need to have more Jesus in our churches. We just have to have more of Jesus in our churches. And he said that over and over again. And when I left that service, I asked myself this question. Do, not, do I know anything more about this Jesus that he spoke about in that sermon, after I left, than I did before I heard it? And the answer was no. He spoke of him as if I knew who he was, and I did. But it made me ask myself the question, how much do I really know about this person that I claim to be my Lord and Savior, and I recognize as being the son of God. And I had to acknowledge that I didn't know as much as I thought I did. And I had to recognize, I had to struggle with the issue that God sent Messiah to the world, not in the year 2000, the 20th or 21st century, but he sent him into the world 2,000 years ago and not into a Western culture, but into an Eastern culture. God went through a lot of effort to pick a man, to turn that man into a family, that family into tribes, and those tribes into a nation. And then at just the right time in history, through that family to present his son, Messiah, to the world. I began to recognize that if I were to take my kaleidoscope of this Jesus that I see and tweak it just a little bit, that I would see a completely different perspective on who he is. The same truth not that the truth changed, but I would have a glimpse of him through a door that I had never seen him through before. 
What I'd like to do is give you a bit of an understanding of the, the way that I approach Scripture and how I learned to examine Scripture more through an Eastern lens than through a Western lens. As you know, Gordon is partway through a sermon series on the life of Peter. He and I had a conversation, and there is one episode in the historical part of of Gordon's presentation that he did not cover, and I would like to use that as our Bible text when we get to the point where we do that. However, before we do that, what I would like to do is give you some information on how the text itself is significant. What are the characteristics, the fundamental characteristics of Scripture? Next slide. Brian, we're probably going to have to do this like this. There's considerations that need to be given of when we read an ancient document. First off, Scripture is written in two languages that are foreign to us. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. And we have... Most of us, I would say, have very little understanding of either one of those languages. What we're reading, what we see, is a translation of those languages. So we've got a a bit of a handicap there that we don't get the language, we don't understand the nuance of the language in its original form because it's not translated for us from the original form. It's only translated for us from the original form. The second aspect of it is that we fail to recognize in our modern age of technology that the logistics of producing a written word is extremely complicated in the ancient world. It's difficult to produce, and it's even more difficult to reproduce. It's not sitting in front of a typewriter and typing seven pages of notes or picking up a book and having several hundreds, if not thousands of pages of information that we can read. It's a difficult thing to produce and even more difficult to reproduce. And because of that, the written word is a valuable commodity in the ancient world. You want to say as much as you can say in as few words as possible. You try to get a thought across, but by saying as few words as you can, So it's incumbent on the writer to be efficient with what he writes, but it's just as incumbent on the reader to digest it thoroughly. We read and read and read and read and read. With an ancient document, the idea is to pick up a small piece of what you're reading. Step back. Put yourself into that story. And once you've got it, once you can see a picture of what's going on in that story, at that point in the story, then you progress to the next step. Reading is is as difficult for the consumer as writing is for the producer. Now, we have a difficult time, a very difficult time understanding that idea. I'll give you an example. If you were to go to Strong's, from the, from, the, from the Bible, if you have a, te- a copy of Strong's, you will find out 
that the Hebrew section of Strong's has 8,674 words in it. If you go to the Greek section, you will find out that that section has 5,624 words in it. Roughly 15,000 words, something along that order. If you look up on the computer right now, the number of words that are in the English language as set forth in Oxford Dictionary, you will find that there are 171,476 words in common usage today. Now, we can say and write and read a lot without having to process each individual section. The ancient consumer did not have that luxury. Now, because of this, let's go to the next slide, Brian. Because of this, ancient writers, it was incumbent on them to become masters of using things called literary devices in order to allow for correct interpretation of what was being written down and understood to be being written down with very few words. One such literary device that was used is called an inclusio. Inclusio, as it shows up in scripture and many other ancient writings, is the writer will say something at the beginning of a section and say the exact same thing or something nearly identical to it at the end of a given section. When the reader reads those two things, he says, ah, there must be something connected about what's between those two points. A good example is the 118th Psalm. The first verse and the last verse of that psalm reads like this. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. When you read those two ends and you go back and read what's in the middle, everything that's between those two points speaks, speaks about the attributes of a good and holy God and why he deserves to be worshipped. And aside to this, if you look at the Psalms, the Psalm that is right before it, 117, happens to be the shortest Psalm out of all of them. And the Psalm that is right after it, Psalm 119, happens to be the longest Psalm. All these things point back to the middle, the heart of what the writer is trying to tell you, that God is a good God. God looks after his people and God deserves to be worshipped. Another literary device is first use. First use in scripture, and again, this is common with much ancient writings, given the limitations on the multiplicity of words that can be used, the, 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 the premise developed that the first time a word is used in scripture gives that instance defines the fundamental definition of that word. And I'll give you an example. Who knows the first time the word love is used in Scripture? Raise your hand if you know. Raise them high. Not many. Okay. The first time the word love is used in Scripture is in the event called the Akidah, the binding of Isaac, Genesis chapter 22. 
God says these words to Abraham. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the place I will show you. That's the very first time that word is used, and you know the context of that, of that event, the akidaz, the binding of Isaac, where God asks Abraham to sacrifice. To think about this. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. Now, first use happens throughout Scripture. There's loads and loads of different instances where we can see where a fundamental definition is given by its first use. The other, let me see, where am I? I've lost my place. I think I need the next slide. I do. There we go. They became masters at using literary devices, but the other thing that the ancient writers became masters of was using interpretive devices. There were two ways that interpretive devices were used. The first is called the use of midrashim. The plural, the singular word is midrash. Midrash in Hebrew basically means a story. Because the, the amount of text that was available is so limited and so small because of the challenges of producing the written word, teachers, rabbis would come up with the, the system of telling stories that help to clarify what is written in Scripture. There are quite literally thousands upon thousands of midrashim that apply to the Old Testament that um, help to clarify some of the issues in Scripture. In the New Testament, we don't see that word used often, but there is another word that happens all the time. Jesus spoke constantly in parables. A parable is a story, just like a midrash, that helps to clarify a, a biblical point. Jesus was a master teacher, and he taught the way the people understood. I'll give you an example of a midrash that helps to clarify the story. We can use the same example of the Akidah. God says to Abraham, the midrash goes like this. God says to Abraham, take your son. Abraham says to God, which one? I have two. God says, take your only son. Abraham says to God, which one? I have two only sons by two different mothers. God says, take your only son whom you love. Abraham says, which one? I love them both. And God says, Yitzhak. And Abraham says, oh, you mean the only one I have left because you already took the other one. That's the intensity of what that story represents. Another interpretive device that the rabbis came up with was reading, understanding that scripture, documents of this nature must be read at different levels. There are four levels of reading an ancient work. To this day, this method is still used in, uh, in studying the word of God. The first level is called, I'm going to give them to you real quickly, Peshat. The second is Remetz. The third is Darash. And the fourth is Sod. 
It goes by the acronym PRDS, PARDES. Peshat is simply understanding the words that are written on the page. Not really much of an interpretive uh, consideration at all. Remetz is the lowest level of engaging the scripture. It's what we do when we read the scripture and get the story that is told to us. Darash is the first level of engaging the story. It's the level where we try to get into the meaning of what's really going on in this story. Like what was Abraham going through when God asked him to do what he did? And then the highest level, Sod, is a level that very few people ever get into, even among very educated scholars. It just doesn't happen that often. We typically engage scripture when we read it at the level of remets. But when you hear a sermon, like the ones that Gordon does, when you're in a Bible study, like what we do on Sunday mornings, we are moving from Deresh, from Remetz, to Derash. We're taking it to the next level. We're trying to understand the intimacy of the word that God has put before us. And by doing so, understanding who our God is more clearly, and if we understand him more clearly, interacting with him more closely. Now, the rabbis came up with a few principles about understanding Scripture. Next slide, please. There are principles of engaging the Word of God. The, lo the first one that they came up with is the highest form of worship is blank. Now, this is true to this day in Orthodox Judaism, and I personally believe it's true for us today if we... If we Pursue it enough. Anybody know what the blank is? Some of you, I know you know. There ought to be several hands going up. The highest form of worship is study. Study. God is honored when you study his word. God honors that study by revealing a facet of who he is that you wouldn't get if you didn't study. So the highest form of worship is study. Another one that they come up, came up with is reciting the word of God. The way they state it is like this. The person who recites the word of God 101 times is infinitely wiser than the person who recites the word 100 times. Now, in our culture, we read scripture. In my study, the, build, the room in our house that's my study, quite often when I'm studying the word of God, I speak the word of God. In the ancient world, that's the way it was done. The story in the book of Acts where uh, Philip comes upon the Ethiopian eunuch who is sitting in his chariot or sitting on the, in, on the camel. He hears him, listen to this, he hears the eunuch reading the word of God. In the ancient world, when you read, you spoke it. You hear God speak through your own voice. You speak it. And I promise you, if you hear God speaking, you will see things about his truth that you would have missed 
if you had not been saying it out loud. Another principle about studying the Word of God is if you come to a point where you don't understand what's going on, there's a place to find it. And that place to find it is in the text. Virtually every episode in Jesus' ministry, I think one day is going to be traced back to some element in the text. Boatloads that has already happened to. God willing, we'll see one this morning. The answer is that it's always in the text. It's always in the text. Now, like I said, we usually engage Scripture at the level of derash, remits, I'm sorry. But what I'm going to try to do is help us to go through a, a Scripture and an episode in Peter's life that takes us to the next level. Uh, next slide, please. This is what, let us stand together and we'll recite the Word of God. This is John chapter 21, verses 1 through 7 and 11. I can't see. Okay, I can, if I look this way, I can see it. All right, let's recite this together. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but they caught nothing. That, but that night they caught nothing. Early the next morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water and then jumped down to verse 11. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Thank you. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, and I read it from my perspective, that's a pretty interesting thing that he even went so far as to count the fish, 153. But I need to know why. If God saw fit to put it in his word, the question that we always need to ask ourselves is why do I need to know that? Why that? What's so significant about that? The only way we can answer that, by the way, there is huge significance to that, and we'll see it in a, in a few moments. The only way that we can really answer that question is by putting ourselves in that story. We can't evaluate that without knowing what the nuance is of where it came from. Give me the next slide, please, Brian. In order to do that, we need to understand the context. The first part of understanding that context is the land of Israel. Next slide. 
In the Israel of Jesus' day, there were three very, very distinct territories. If you look at Israel from, I'll show you a slide of this in a minute, so I'm not going to go through the uh, effort of explaining it now. The middle section of of Israel in Jesus' day was known as Samaria. Samaria was a territory that began uh, taking its form because of the Assyrian occupation of Israel in 722 B.C. The Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were a brutal, brutal warrior tribe. What they would do is take all the notable citizens out of one area and replace them with notable citizens from another area so that they did not know the language, they did not know the land, they did not know anything about where they were, and because of that, they would not be able to mount an uprising against the Assyrians. This resulted in what was known as the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel, and the people that occupied this territory were Samaritans. Samaritans, by definition, are those who are the the poorest locals that they left who commingled and intermarried with the others that they brought in so they were not pure blood. In Jesus' day, pure blood Israelites hated the Samaritans and vice versa. The next section, next slide, is the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was known in Jesus' day as Judah. Judah got conquered in 586 by the Babylonians, carried off in the Babylonian captivity, returned 70 years later under Cyrus the Persian. In the south, the, the, the territory, this territory is what contained the, the temple and all the things that went along with it. Next slide. The northern territory of Galilee is above the top of this. Galilee was deserted, essentially, from the time of the Assyrian Revolt till about 200 years before the time of Jesus. The Maccabean Revolt, the Maccabeans defeated their overlords, and they put out the word to the Jews all over the known world. And they said, we got our country back. Come on back, the weather's fine. Well, they did come back. By the tens of thousands, they came back. Well, they couldn't go to Judah because Judeans lived there. They wouldn't go to Samaria because Samaritans lived there. So the only place that was left for them to go was Galilee. And they went to Galilee, and when they went there, they had a fierce, fierce loyalty to the kingdom of God. This is where the rabbinic movement prospered most of the time during this part of history. They asked themselves this question, why did God take our country again? And they answered it, because we were disobedient. They asked, how were we disobedient? We broke Torah. How can we make sure that we never lose our country again? By never breaking Torah. So they came up with the system of building fences and fences and fences around Torah. And we may break through a fence, but if we're careful, we will not break Torah and God will never take our country away again. Next slide. This gives you an overview of these three three different territories. Galilee in the north, Samaria in the central territory, Judah in the south. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is in in Judah, or Judea, but he was raised, he was a product of Galilee. 
He lived in Galilee. Nazareth is Galilee. He moved to Capernaum. Capernaum is in Galilee. Most of his early ministry was in, in, in Galilee. Give me the next slide. Galilee, it's important in order to understand the story that we just looked at. We need to understand Galilee. This is the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. From where we're standing, if you look that way, you're looking east. This way is west. We're on the north. Galilee was a beautiful territory. And in order to understand Jesus' ministry, we need to recognize that there are five cities that we need to know about. Next slide. The first city is Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the side of the Sea of Galilee where the Jordan River comes into it. Five of Jesus' disciples were from Bethsaida. James, John, Peter, his brother uh, Andrew, and Philip. They were from that town, Bethsaida. They were fishermen. The next two, the next city is Capernaum, where Jesus set up his earthly, most of his earthly ministry's headquarters. Capernaum, we think of it as being a simple little village that uh, Jesus kind of escaped to. Capernaum was the third most significant learning center in all of Israel. First was what? Babylon. Second was what? Jerusalem. Third was Capernaum. Hillel taught at Capernaum. Jesus probably heard Hillel speak when he was a young boy. Next two cities over on the far right, Magadan and Gennesaret, are kind of behind, right on the coast of where we are. And then the last city in the north is Chorazin. Now, if you look at those cities, they create a very specific shape, a triangle. By the time, by a hundred years after Jesus' time, this became known as the religious triangle. And the reason is this. Scholars estimate that somewhere between 80 and 90% of Jesus' activity that took place in his earthly ministry occurred inside that triangle. That was where Jesus called home. That's where he lived. That's where he ministered. That's where he stayed. Now, next slide. Another thing that we need to understand about this story is the industry of fishing. We need to understand fishing itself. We need to understand fishermen. And we need to understand the kind of fish there are. Let me very quickly just say this about fishermen. Fishermen were not your average kind of folks that blended into society. Fishermen were usually what we would consider things like rebels, people that are not afraid of death. In our day, maybe bikers, freedom fighters. Those kind of characters, these were the guys you did not mess with. And for the most part, fishermen occupied that kind of lifestyle. And if you wanted to pick a profession that they were like, long-haul truckers. You don't have a regular schedule. You go when you got to go. You get done what you need to do. And nobody's going to get in your way. Nobody's going to stop you. Now, that's the fishermen. 
But fishing itself in the Sea of Galilee, there's only two kinds of fish that are marketable in the Sea of Galilee. The first is tilapia, larger fish. The second is sardines, smaller fish. What I didn't show you on the slide before, over on the sea east, west, on the west side where you've got Magadan and Gennesaret, there is a series of warm springs that feed into the Sea of Galilee. On the Bethsaida side of it is where the Jordan River comes into. Next slide. Now, in order to understand this, I feel like I'm leaving some exhibits out of here. Give me another slide. Give me another one. Give me another one. Just keep going till I tell you to stop. Keep going. Never mind. Back up. <laughs> keep backing up. What happened to all my slides that showed the, uh, um, the, 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 the river information itself? Okay. I don't know. But I'll go ahead and give it to you. That's a good place to be. I'll give it to you. The Jordan River begins with the headwaters at Mount Hermon. The headwaters form three tributaries. Well, Mount Hermon forms three tributaries. Those tributaries come together to form the Jordan River. For 30 miles, the Jordan River flows downhill till it hits the Sea of Galilee. Once it hits the Sea of Galilee, it goes another 12 miles to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, and then it goes 90 miles into the Dead Sea. Over the length of that period, it goes from an elevation, it goes through an elevation drop of roughly eight-tenths of a mile. That is the steepest decline in a river anywhere in the world. No river descends faster than the Jordan River does. Because of that, the Jordan River in Hebrew is called Hayarden. Hayarden means the descent. One of the things about fishermen that makes them so unique is that they fished. And the reason that was so unique is because the water was always considered the abyss to Israel. God says in the book of Genesis that his spirit hovered over the waters. There was, uh, um, the, the earth was formless and void. In Hebrew, tofu, tohu vavohu, and that means formless and void. It was the place where the gods of the underworld came forth and interacted with mankind. Today, if you go to Israel, you will never see, the things that you will never see is a, is a, um, a housing community built around the, Jordan, uh, around the Sea of Galilee. Never would you live next to the sea. You never see water sports. There's no skiing. There's no sailing. None of that happens on the Sea of Galilee because that is the abyss. Fishermen were considered wild and crazy guys because they went out there every day. Now, in order to understand, I've got my notes a little bit messed up, I'm sorry. But in order to understand what's going on with this 153, now we've got to apply some practices that we've talked about already. So give me the next slide. We need to ask our, back it up one, back it up, there we go, thank you. We need to ask ourselves this question. God specifically tells us 153 fish. Why do I need to know that? Out of all the things that Jesus did, 
all the events, all the particulars, why that? Why is it so important for me to understand and recognize the number of large fish that he caught? Well, here's the first part of it. We read earlier that when they went out fishing, they fished at night because we're told they fished all night and caught nothing. You don't fish for large fish at night. You fish for sardines at night. When you fish for sardines, you're on the east, the western part of the sea where the warm springs are, and you use a special kind of net called a seine net. And the way you fish is you take your boat out, you start with a net on one side, you take your boat out into the water, and then you take the net all the way to the shoreline on the other side, and you begin pulling the boat into shore. And while you're doing that, you've got someone in the water, and that person in the water is moving the fish along with the boat, and when you get into the shore, you collect them. That's the way you fish for sardines at night. You fish for tilapia in a totally different way. Instead of a, a seine net, you use a larger net. And you cast it. And when you cast it, you've got weights on the bottom. It goes under it. And you pull it up. And you catch the fish. And you pull them into the boat. And then when you pull them into the boat, when you're full, you move on in. The reason you don't use the same net is because tilapia will bust right through a same net. And a sardine will swim right through the kind of net you would use for, for tilapia. So Jesus is on the shore. There is a place, Gordon showed us this exhibit a couple of weeks ago, where they believe that this event took place. I've been standing in that same spot. And where this happens, and the fact that it happens at night, there's no question that they were fishing for sardines. Jesus yells out to him. My translation says, friends. Some of your translations are a much better translation of the Greek word. He yells out, children. Do you know what a rabbi calls his disciples? His children. Jesus yells out, children. They're a hundred yards away, the scripture tells us. They don't know who he is. But John, the one who Jesus loves, said, that's him. That's him. He says, have you caught anything? He says, nah, they say not a thing. Been fishing all night, didn't catch a thing. Well, throw your net on the other side. And when they did, they had a catch of fish, large fish, 153 that are supposed to be eight miles east of here, the wrong time of day, the wrong net, everything about it was wrong. And John says, that's him. And Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter throws his robe back on, his outer garment, because he had taken it off and he jumps into water. Almost a certain guarantee Peter could not swim. People in Israel did not know how to swim. They were afraid of the water. He jumped in it. 
He was in shallow water. We know that one of them is going to be in there to work the sardines. But he goes in, and he's not going to wait on a boat to go 100 yards. He takes off, and he gets to the shore, and he comes out of the water, and he sees Jesus there. Now, remember, this is the same Rocky, the same Peter that says, I'll never, I'll never leave you. And Jesus looks at him and says, before the day is out three times, you're going to deny that you even know me. And he does that. The last time, Peter's eyeballs lock with Jesus. They're marching him out, and he had just denied him three times. Jesus appeared to him twice before this, but no interaction between those two that we know of. He gets to the shore. And Jesus is standing there, and he looks at him, eyeball to eyeball. They come across, the boat comes in. There's so many fish in it that they can't, can't pull it in. And Peter says, I'll get it in. And he goes back in, and he pulls that same net ashore, and they drag it up on the coast, and they open it up, and they count them. There's 153 fish. And Jesus already has a fire of burning coals. The last time, Peter sat by a fire of burning coals. He denied him. Called down curses on him. And now he's sitting by another one. Jesus said, come on in. Bring some of the fish you caught. Let's have a fish fry. And they have breakfast. By a campfire. At dawn. Nobody else around. Put yourself in the story. What do guys do when you sit around a campfire with a full belly and you're relaxed? And it's been a good day because I caught a big crap crowd of fish. You get loose. You start relaxing. You talk to each other. Chat. Laugh. And in all this activity, all of a sudden, Jesus looks up. I see him sitting on the other side of the fire. And he looks at Rocky. And he says, Shimon ben Yochanan, Simon, son of John. That is a formal title. That's like what you put in a court proceeding. Shimon ben Yochanan, Simon, son of John. I got a question for you. Simon looks at him in the presence of the other six. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you the English words, not the, he, not the Greek words, but you'll get the point. I got a question for you, Simon Bokana. Do you love me? Peter looks at him, and he remembers what he just did to him. 
He said, Lord, you know everything. You know I ain't worthy. I like you. I like you. Jesus said, my, my, my. How about you feed my lambs for me? I bet it got quiet. Jesus looks at him again and says, Shimon, Ben Yochanan. I want to ask you again. Look at my eyes. Do you love me? Simon says, Lord, I'm not worthy to love you. I like you. Hmm. Jesus looks at him a third time. And he says, Shimon ben Yochanan, so you like me. He did not say agapeo that time. He said phileo. So you like me, huh? That's good enough for you, huh? And that's where we're told Peter was hurt. Because the third time Jesus said, you like me. And Rocky says, yeah, that's all I got. That's all I'm worthy of. I like you. And Jesus looks at him and says, let me tell you something, Simon ben Yochanan. You're a big, strong fisherman, biker, freedom fighter, truck driver kind of guy. When you were a young man, you dressed yourself. Nobody told you what to do. Nobody told you anything. And you went where you wanted to go, and nobody stopped you. But the day's going to come, Simon, when you will no longer dress yourself. You will no longer go where you want to go. The day's going to come when they're going to stretch out your arms. And they're going to take you places you don't want to be. And they're going to do things you don't want them to do. And then he looks at Simon and he says, listen to me real good. I got two words for you. Follow me. Simon, you're still an apostle. You're still rocky. Now, you ask, what does it have to do with 153 fish? I need to give you one more literary device. Next slide. Next slide. Next slide. If you look at the last sentence... In chapter 20, it will read like this. These are written 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Next slide. If you look at the very last verse in John's Gospel, it says almost the same thing. Jesus did many other things as well. If everyone was written down, I suppose the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. A statement at the beginning, a statement at the end. Bookends. Inclusio. Everything between those two points is connected to one theme. Why do I need to know 153 fish? I'll give you this very quickly without going through the slides. 200 years after the time of Jesus, a Greek ichthyologist set about to number, to count the number of fish that were in the world. 200 years after this event, a Greek, not a Christian, we have enough history about this man to know he never became a Christian. He comes up with guess how many fish in the sea? Take a guess, wild guess. Say it out loud. 153 fish in the sea. Only one. If we want to use this as symbolic, only one is Hebrew. The other 152 are Gentile. That's a secular record. We could go to the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 47, we, we're told about the, the river that begins in the temple of God and flows eastward. Goes a thousand cubits, it's ankle deep. Another thousand is knee deep. Another thousand, it's waist deep. Another thousand, you can't swim it, it's so deep. Flowing out of the temple, flowing east. What is east? The direction of rebellion and judgment. Why didn't anybody in my class shout that out? <laughs> rebellion and judgment. Flowing towards those who are enemies of God. And we're told that when the river begins to flow bigger and bigger and broader and broader, so big and so fast, you can't swim it. That the Arabah, the desert around the Dead Sea is going to become fertile. And fishermen will line the shores and they will catch fish from Engedi to Eglam. Engedi to Eglam. Will the rabbis study that? Why Engedi? Why Eglam? The spring of the deer. And the spring of what Ereglegum means, I forgot what it means. But why those two places? Well, there's one other characteristic about ancient language we haven't talked about. In addition to a linguistic component of every letter and therefore every word, there is also an 